Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honored that you're here with me. If you haven't joined our wonderful marketing transformation community yet, go to innovabiz.co and collect your free gift as well. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this InnovaBuzz podcast. You need to become more curious, right? You need to focus on developing your level of curiosity and just take an interest in, in new things. But, and this is the key part, don't get interested in new things for their own sake. The thing that makes something move from just being creative to being innovative is when you take those new things and you work on them to create actual value. Welcome back. I hope you've had an awesome week so far. If you haven't yet listened to my recent conversations with business strategy and marketing consultant Mike Moll and with Brendan Kumarasamy of Master Talk, then do check them out, but only after you've listened to today's conversation, of course. I'm really excited to have on the Innova Buzz podcast as my guest today, Tendai Vicky. Tendai is an author and a corporate innovation expert. He's also an associate partner at Strategizer, where he helps companies innovate for the future while managing their core business. In our discussion today, Tendai talked to me about why innovation project portfolio success is a much better measure than individual success. He explained the three types of innovation projects to include in a balanced portfolio. And he explained to me that there is no innovation without relationships. Without further ado then, let's fly into the hive and get the buzz from Tendai Vicky. Hi. I'm your host, Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm really excited today to have on the InnovaBuzz podcast all the way from London in the UK, Dr. Tendai Vicky. Tendai grew up in Zimbabwe. He got his first degree there. Then he went on to Europe to become an academic at university for a while and moved to Silicon Valley working at Stanford, which is where he got into innovation. Today, he's an associate partner at Strategizer which is co-founded by Alexander Osterwalder, who's been on our podcast before. So big hello to Alex. And you help companies innovate for the future while managing their core business today. You're the author of three books, Pirates in the Navy, The Corporate Startup, and The Lean Product Lifecycle, and also a regular contributor to Forbes. So previously, Tendai was Director of Product Lifecycle at Pearson. He co-developed an innovation framework that won the Best Innovation Program 2015 
at the Corporate Entrepreneurs Award Awards in New York. He's been shortlisted for the Thinkers 50 Innovation Award and was named on the Thinkers 50 2018 radar list for emerging management thinkers to watch. So I'm really excited to welcome to the Innova Buzz podcast today, Tendai. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We've got a long talk. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> it's a great privilege to have you as my guest. Now, as I said, we've previously had Alex Osterwalder, also Steve Blank and Pete Newell that you also work closely together with. So big yeah. hello to Alex, Steve and Pete, and also to Terry Vanich, who's been instrumental in organizing times with each of you. And, and I know she listens to the podcast and is a fan. Yes. Shout out to Terry. Hey, Terry. Yeah. <laughs> now you define yourself as uncomplacent, something that he thinks all innovation leaders need to be or something you think all innovation leaders need to be. Now, tell me, what does that mean? Yeah, so it's interesting, right? Um, people are often advised uh, to make hay while the sun shines. I think you've heard that before. <laughs> uh, make hay while the sun shines. And um, the reason why that even became something to say at all is because making hay while the sun is shining is the hardest thing to do because when the <laughs> sun is shining you want to go to the beach <laughs> sit in a hammock read a book right it's because when people have the sense that they've accomplished something or they've succeeded in life the tendency almost automatically is to slow down and enjoy the success and so what happens then is the moment you stop using a muscle you, you lose that muscle. So if you stop using your entrepreneurial muscle as a company, you lose that muscle. If you stop losing the quest to get better as an individual, you lose that muscle. And to build it back up again becomes really difficult. And so, you know, the idea of becoming uncomplacent really speaks to the human condition, which is a tendency towards complacency. And then it really has a, a big impact on how companies view themselves, right? And, and how they run. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Now, I'm curious. You started off in forensic psychology, I believe. Yeah. How did you How did you do that transition to innovation and strategy around innovation? I don't know. Maybe all business people are crooks now. It was a. <laughs> it was a. It was a. It was a very strange journey, right? It had no. That's why people always ask me. Like when I'm like, people want to, me to mentor them, they say like, so what do I need to do to, to become like, you know, what you became? And I'm just like, I have no idea how I became what I became in, in, <laughs> in, in, in any methodical sense. What I know is that I kept following things that interested me. Hmm. So I was first interested in law, but then I didn't do a law degree. I did a psychology degree because that became much more interesting for me. And then I got interested in forensic psychology because one of my first jobs was to go to a courtroom and transcribe cases for a, a certain professor so we could analyze the data. So that kind of drew me in. And then I, I came to England and I did a, a master's in forensic psychology from the University of Kent. But while I was doing that, I met a really great professor called Dominic Abrams, who was a social psychologist. Then I got diverged again, just sort of following my interest into the sort of general social psychology, which is where I then did my PhD. While I was doing my PhD, I, I had a great colleague called Stefan Gizna, who's now a professor at Rotterdam, who was into like mergers and acquisitions. So that drew me into like business psychology, creativity, all the way through to that fellowship at Stanford, 
which kind of emerged because I met some somebody at a conference who was impressed with my work and then they invited me to come to Stanford. And when I was at Stanford, I met somebody who invited me to Facebook, right? <laughs> where, where Facebook were running their first accelerator and also to attend Steve Blank's classes because there was a lot of conversations happening there. So I was attending Steve Blank's classes and I was going to Facebook's accelerator and then I was it. That was another sort of divergent point. So it's almost like this chaotic willingness to follow detours and rabbit holes that become interesting for me that then navigate me to where I am today. So who knows, right? What, what, what we'll be talking about with me 10 years from now. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things that strikes me about what you've said there and how you've outlined your, your path is curiosity, that, that insatiable curiosity about what you experience and what might be coming up. Uh, and is how important is that for innovation? Oh, it's absolutely important for innovation. Like the moment you become uncurious, you can't become a really great innovator, right? I mean, it, it, innovation is almost like the pursuit of novelty, right? But <laughs> yeah. it's not the pursuit of novelty for novelty's sake. It's the pursuit of novelty with, with the ultimate goal of creating continuous value. Because what, what we do understand is that you know, things atrophy, right? So business models get, get old. They, they don't last forever. So there's always a, a peak and, and then a decline. And so if you stay consistently curious about how you can get better and how you can, um, how you can find new ways to create value, then that, that absolutely helps. Hmm. Okay. So I'm someone who lived through the transition to digital photography with one of the traditional film manufacturers back right. in the early 1990s. Right. And having lived through that and having seen that kind of rapid decline of the film manufacturers, and we all know what happened there, but having actually experienced that firsthand, um, actually in the early 1980s it was, I'm dating myself a little bit now, um, but having experienced that firsthand, I've always been curious, you know, how does a how does a business find that balance between keeping their core business going and yet innovating at the edges so that they're either ahead of the game in terms of that total disruption of their business model, or at least they're in a position to pivot very quickly if that disruption happens externally? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. So, so there's one thing that I assume is true, and maybe you can tell me if it's not true. But I've often found that in very many organizations, what the people at the top of those organizations of those organizations care about happens. Mm -hmm. Right. If the CEO, the C, and all the chief, then the chief CFO, and the CTO, and all of those folks, if they care about something they tend to push it through and make it happen. And so the question then becomes, to what extent do our top leaders care about balancing the exploitation of the current business and exploring new opportunities? Jeff Bezos cares about that, so it happens, uh, right? Uh, you know, the CEO of Intuit, I think his name is Scott Cook, you know, they, he cares about that, so it, it happens inside the, that organization. So. The first thing that we do often when we're having conversations with leaders is to show them this distinction to say, there's a part of your business where you're exploiting your current success and you have to do that because that's how you're keeping the lights on. 
Hmm. But it's a part of your business where you have to be thinking about how you're going to keep the lights on five years down the road, 10 years down the road. And you have to be building those things now so that by the time you need to, you, to sort of lean on them, they're there for you. And then we say, so let's look at your current portfolio and let's see which, where the bias is. And we, and we map that with them. And 99% of the stuff that they're kind of spending most of their time with is in the exploit portfolio. And just visually showing them that makes explicit to them the choices they're making. Because sometimes people are making choices, but they're implicit choices. They're sort of coming to work, and as soon as they walk into the door, they're confronted by all these problems in the core business, and they're helping solve those problems. And then they go home, and then they come back the next day, and they do the same thing. But if we make the choices very explicit, and then we say, this is the choice you've made. Is this a choice you're comfortable with? And then the leaders can say, yeah, it's a choice I'm comfortable with because, you know, I'm in pharma or whatever. Pharma will never get disrupted. Whatever it is that they want to say. Then we say, okay, with that leader, it's a harder conversation to then get them to implement the, 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 you know, the exploration part of their portfolio. But with the leader that says, yes, I get it. This is making me really uncomfortable. How do I get this done? Then we can say, right, well, the way to get it done is to do this, set up this thing, set up that thing. And then we start building that with them. But before there is an acceptance and an acknowledgement that an unbalanced portfolio is dangerous for the business, it's really hard to move forward with any company like that. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting conundrum, isn't it, with having that balanced portfolio? And I guess where I experienced it was it was already very late that that um, there wasn't that balance between. I mean, they were innovating in some aspects, that, but they were innovating in areas that were kind of expanding outside of their core business mm. and they were kind of putting their core business at risk as it turned out uh, by not paying attention to what was happening with digital photography and then when the first um, digital camera the digital consumer camera was actually launched um, it was panic stations for about two months and I was on a task force that had to evaluate the the first prototype and report back on it mm -hmm. and once once we reported back and said well it's not actually true digital and the quality actually isn't very good but of course the report went on to say a lot more than that it went on to say that this was proof of concept here's all the um, patents that are out there that indicate that they're working really heavily on um, improving on this whole technology there's a whole lot of other people doing stuff in the background you have big companies like this was sony but there's also other big companies working on this that have got lots of horsepower behind them mm -hmm. and uh, and we expect this would probably actually uh, could be mainstream within 20 years now as it turned out we were wrong it was mainstream in 10 years but the the um, senior management didn't read past the bit that said the quality was no good. And, and the conclusion was, we just need to make better film. Right, exactly. Frank yeah. has got one of my favorite quotes, right? Which is, disruption on day one always looks like a toy. <laughs> yeah. Right? And so, and, that's, and that's, that's why large companies get disrupted. You see, if large companies would respond to the early signs of disruption in the way they're supposed to, they would never get disrupted. But the problem hmm. is that disruption always turns up looking like, what? Who would want to do this? Like, yeah. who, would to, who would want to take a digital camera with a picture that looks that's so grainy that you can't even tell what it is? Like, 
who who would want this? Just like the same question that you know Bill Gates and, and Steve Jobs were asked, like, who are these people who would want to have a computer in their home and what would they do with it? Mm-hmm. You know, like disruption always looks like it's absurd and we would never do that. We're IBM or we would never do that. We're Kodak or, or, or whatever, right? And so mm-hmm. because disruption always looks like a toy, what people tend to forget is that disruption always enters at the bottom. And then over time, as the technology gets better, more and more of your customers start moving to that technology. Hmm. And if more and more of your customers start moving to the technology, that's when you get disrupted because now you don't have the cap- the capacity to respond as quickly as your disruptors were already way ahead of you. Yeah. So how do we how do we create an ecosystem within any business that keeps tabs on all of those toys, as you call them, that that are. are kind of being developed out there and and I'm guessing you know there's probably thousands of toys and only one or two of those might eventually turn into a real product mm-hmm. how do we keep tabs on those how do we also set up uh, an ecosystem where we've actually got people developing some toys that that might serve us going forward or might disrupt another industry or might disrupt our own industry which is another question but we'll get to that one later yeah, so I mean, the, the thing we care about, right, is the likelihood that our business model might get disrupted. So, one of the assessments that we've created as strategizer is something we call the disruption risk assessment, which is a tool that you know organizations on an ongoing basis can use to assess the, the risk that their core business model might get disrupted by emerging technologies. And we assess various dimensions, including like internal weaknesses in the business model, but also external emerging challenges. So, what that means is that you know. Every organization must have some sort of scouting capability or a, an external partner that they work with who kind of just scans the world and, and sees what's actually happening. Uh, Lena List was a really wonderful, wonderful, wonderful um, innovator. She used to be head of innovation at Rumble. Gave this really great talk where she discussed this kind of process they have for scouting what's emerging out there. And they focus on startups. And they have focuses on like which areas and spaces are getting the most investment right now with an increasing number of startups that are working on these technologies, right? And so, so then she's got a really nice wheel and she shows exactly all the startups that they're tracking in terms of like which ones of those are actually emerging. And just with that kind of level of studying and, 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 and tracking the data, you get a sense of where you, you as a company need to start sort of responding. Now, tracking by itself is useless, of course. You need, you then need to build the response, right? And the response is mm-hmm. really, can we build our own portfolio of things that we're playing with that are connected to the disruptors that we see emerging that provide us a chance to, 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 to respond? And so you need to build both things, and, and that's really what we encourage companies to do. Hmm. And how do, you, how do you go about convincing like particularly CEOs of larger companies that it's it's actually worthwhile to invest in that capacity when probably 80 to 90% of the efforts of the people doing that work then will actually not give any real ROI on the bottom line directly. Yeah, no, it's a very difficult conversation. And, you know, Alex is a really great mentor to me uh, and he has convinced me that you can never convince people of anything. Like, <laughs> like they need to already be kind of on the journey. 
and, mm. and, and then they need more. So what we do is we make explicit. We have visual tools that make explicit. So let me give you an example. For example, we were once working with a large airline. So we go to this large airline. It's the global head of innovation for this large global airline. And we say to them, okay, and they're like, come and help me because I want to make sense of like all these innovation programs I have in the company, but we don't really know what's happening. So we get all these different divisions and the heads of innovation. We come together, we say, write down the top 10 innovations you're most proud of from your division. So they write down the top 10 innovations they're most proud of. Some of these are award-winning innovations. Then we mm. say, okay, fantastic. Now, as you can see on the wall there, we have a three-dimensional chart. It's got three categories in it. The first category is what we call efficiency innovation, which is just innovations to improve your current business. Then we have sustaining innovations, which are innovations where you take your current capabilities and you start building something new and interesting. And then we have transformational innovations, which are innovations where you're exploring and testing brand new value propositions and brand new business models that are di distinct from your current business models. So can you please take your top 10 innovations and place each one where you think it sits? So then they start to do it, start to do it. And of course, people start putting their stuff in transformational. And, mm -hmm. and after they've done it, we're like, well, let's have a conversation. Is this really transformational? Is this really a new value proposition? Is it really a new business? And they're like, okay, no, it isn't. So everything starts to move back to the right. <laughs> and then, so in the end, once we're done with that exercise, they look at their portfolio and they realize that 90% of their innovations are efficiency innovations with 10% sustaining and nothing in transformation. Hmm. And then we say to them, okay, so there it is. This is what you, this is, this is the innovation team. Never mind the CEO or the CFO. This is what, they, what the, innovation, the innovators are working on. So we're like, okay, you're looking at that. That's your portfolio of innovation. To what extent are you comfortable with that? Because what we know historically is if you just keep improving your current business model, you're designing a way to more efficiently die, which is what I have to all know. It's a way to more efficiently die. So to what extent are you comfortable with this? And so it becomes a coaching tool that triggers conversations. And if people insist that they're comfortable with that, then there's nothing we can do really mm. to, try and tell them, to try and tell them that that's a, that's a bad idea. But often we find that people are not comfortable with this and, and, and they want to do more. And then we really can start to work with them to sort of build that practice for them. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. Um, it's, a, it's a great tool to kind of visualize that, that um, the three types of innovation that you outlined there. Yeah. So I know you talk about three types of pirates, so that in, in um, Pirates in the Navy in your book. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the metaphor there. <laughs> yes. So, so the book was kind of inspired by, by this kind of storytelling that we have around innovation. And in the storytelling around innovation, the antagonist has always been the organization. So innovators, entrepreneurs, they are the main character, the protagonist, they're doing really well. They're the main star of the movie. And the thing that they're up against is the organization. And organizations are all, managers, leaders, MBAs are always framed as the negative thing that you're having to get over. And all the conversations we have are about how bad these people are and how bad these organizations are. And I wanted to flip that on its head and shine a light on the innovators themselves and how bad they are. And so we, so we, so, so Pirates in the Navy is based on this concept that if you're going to be an entrepreneur inside a large organization, 
there is no chance that you can succeed if you don't build relationships with those very people that you're detracting. Yeah. Right. Because there is no innovation that ever succeeds inside a large organization without leadership support, without working with key functions, without working with sales directors, without working with the CTO. You can never succeed. So the level of authenticity that you bring to the task as an innovator will help you become much more successful. And so that's why I make this distinction between just a pirate, a typical pirate, that's just yeah. roaming the high seas, robbing, looting, stealing, they're unattached to any institution, and compare that pirate to a privateer, who is a pirate that's out there also doing pirate-type things, but the only difference is they're attached to an institution. They've been sent by someone to do that work. And so mm. I say to entrepreneurs, you've got the choice. You can be a pirate pirate, but if, if anything you're working on is found by the company, it will be made to walk the plank. Or you can be a privateer who spends sufficient time getting a charter to be able to do the work that they're doing. Because once they complete that work, there are people there ready and willing and waiting to, to, to take that on and, and scale it and apply it within the organization. Yeah, yeah, there's so much to love about that. And it, it kind of, to me, it speaks to, you know, the pirate who's in it for themselves. So it's a very selfish thing and they want to be the hero. They want to stand out as, hey, I've got these wonderful ideas and I'm always innovating and nobody listens to me, right? Um, or the privateer who's the person that says, well, what, what are the issues that we need to deal with here and who can I talk to to identify opportunities and who can I talk to to build alliances to get things happening when, when somebody comes up with an idea? Yeah, exactly. And Karen Krippendorf, who wrote this book, Driving Innovation from Within, really, really great book. He talks about how he gives an example. He quotes the Nike head of innovation who kind of led the work on the fuel ban. And, and the quote goes something like, and this is really paraphrasing, that when you're working inside a large organization and you're trying to be an innovator, like 50% of the work is the product. The other 50% of the work is politics. So you spend a lot of time lining up the cannons, like making sure that they're all pointed in the right direction, legal, compliance, HR, make sure all of these things are all pointing, finance, right? Um, sales, marketing, making sure all of these functions are all pointing in the right direction, right? Because of course, if you're an innovator, some of the cannons are pointed at you. So you want to turn them around, make sure that they're pointing out into the world so that you can sort of fix you know, the, the, the situation. But, they, but then they say something powerful at the end of that, which is if you succeed at lining up all of these cannons, you get this benefit of being supported by a big company. That's something that startups don't have. So if you line up the cannon and when they all go off, they go off with a really big bang because you use the machinery of this large organization and its access to resources to sort of fast track your innovation, right? And so if the entrepreneur, the innovator does not understand the value of that, they're always gonna play this persecuted hero, you know, a prophet is never listened to in their own land. You know, this whole, oh, woe, woe, woe be me. If only people <laughs> had listened to me, there would be no disruption. And it's just like, yeah, sure, but that's not really how you're supposed to sort of approach the work. Hmm. Okay, so how can how can small business and startups, as you say, um, take, or what lessons can they learn from from what you're saying there in terms of getting resources behind them to 
bring some ideas or what they see as innovations to fruition. When you say small businesses, you mean like non-Fortune 500 companies? Yeah, yeah. Like me, me. Somebody that doesn't have a huge kind of resource and doesn't have all those cannons to line up. So they've, they've got something, there's an idea there, or, or there may be even a prototype there for an industry, but it it's, um yeah, the breakthrough, getting that breakthrough. Yeah. So if you're a startup, you're a startup, right? Like you have to deal with all the things that a startup has to deal with. You have to, you've got this one idea, you have to test it. You know, I, I, I often say that for the startup, their one idea is like the most important thing in the world. For the venture capitalist that's investing in them, they're just like a small part of the portfolio, so they can fail. Yeah. <laughs> so the math is a little different, which is why we say to large companies, invest in a portfolio of ideas so you can find one, one, one successful one. So if you're a startup, you have to engage in deliberate testing and validating of your business model, iterating, et cetera. It's kind of lean startup, lean, lean startup one-on-one there. If you're a small company that's already got something successful that's working, and now you're thinking about, you know, is there, are there other things that we can do, then I would just say start small, right? Rather than try and go, because if you're a small company and you already have something that's working, you may not have big cannons, but you have cannons. And mm -hmm. so you can leverage the small cannons you have to, 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 to kind of drive innovation. So just start small, right? When, when, whereas a large company could invest in 50 ideas, maybe you can invest in five. But at least the fact that you've kind of started and you're kind of making small bears and slowly testing those and seeing what works and, and, and what doesn't work. Just in that kind of process, you'll find one or two things that can help your company grow and sustain itself into the future. Yeah. And what's the what do you, what's your view on on failure in terms of, you know, testing out these new things? So do you see um, companies afraid of failure or being failure averse? And is that, and how do you, I'm assuming you're going to say yes to this. So how do you, how do you address that issue or kind of change your mindset around that? Yeah. So what is it about failure that makes people afraid, right? <laughs> the thing about failure that makes people afraid, especially if you're working on a large company is that it's career suicide, right? Mm. If your project fails or your idea fails, it's a reputational risk and a reputational damage on you. If you're a leader that's put in investment in a team and then that team fails, that's a reputational risk on you. So the question is, how do we lower that reputational risk within organizations? And the way we lower the reputational risk is to say to leaders, don't ever think of innovation as succeeding on a one-by-one-by-one -by -one -by -one project basis. You have to think about it as a portfolio. And what we care about is the success of the portfolio, not the success of any individual idea in the portfolio. Individual ideas in the portfolio can fail, but the portfolio itself can actually succeed. So Portfolio success is the metric for leaders investing in, in, in innovation. And then the second thing that really makes leaders unwilling to accept failure is when they make huge bets, right? So teams come asking for investment and then they get 2 million, 3 million. And I often say to teams, the moment your boss gives you 3 million, they didn't just give you money. They also gave you their reputation. And so now you can't. And so we say to companies and we say to teams, don't ask for 3 million. Ask your company to make a small bet and promise that on the basis of that small bet, you'll be able to give them information that they can then use to decide if they should bet some more. Right. And now we've kind of built this relationship between size of investment and learning. And then if, you, if, if we're like, if it's like $10,000 and we decide to stop, like, who cares? Like, 
if PwC came to a Fortune 500 company and $10,000 was missing, they were just like, it's a rounding off error. They just, <laughs> nobody cares. It's not the kind of money that, 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 that even a leader can lose their reputation over. So you want to kind of put all those things in place that allow um, hmm. you to feel safe while, you, while, while you're failing. Yeah. So it's, it's about doing small experiments then as well, right? Yeah. So yeah. gathering that data because the small investment is a small experiment and getting, um, getting out to test phase very quickly and very early with a, a, a small prototype. Exactly. Cheap, fast, learn, shut it down if it's not working. Cheap, mm -hmm. fast, learn, scale it, scale it if it is. And in, and, and in that process, the fear goes away because we, we know we're kind of just seeing if something is going to work or not. You know, let's see. Mm -hmm. That, that's yeah. the attitude that you want to take, yeah. And I think that philosophy applies whether it's a big company or a small company. It's just the dollar amount invested or the time invested is, is exactly. a different scale. Yeah, it applies mm. even to a startup. You know, should yeah. we go with this customer segment or that one? Should we go with, with this uh, channel or that one? Right? You can test all those things quickly and 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 and, and make decisions cheaply. Yeah. Mm. Right. I love it. Well, this is fascinating, Tendai. I um. I'm, Love the approach, and uh, I could go on talking innovation for ages, particularly based on my experience that I shared earlier. But um, I, I keep uh, thinking back to those times, but I think I, I probably um, uh, need to let go of that experience because it was a pretty traumatic time. But uh, you know, let it go, let it go. Yeah, I fully embrace the digital photography now as a hobby photographer, so it's uh, it's all good. I think it's a Good time to move on though to the buzz which is we call it our innovation round and it's designed to help our audience who are primarily leaders in their field with some tips from your experience so i've got five questions and hopefully you'll give us some insightful answers that'll inspire the listener to go and do something awesome as a result mm -hmm. so first question very relevant what's the number one thing you think anyone needs to do to be more innovative you need to become more curious right you need to focus on developing your level of curiosity and just take an interest in, in new things. But, and this is the key part, don't get interested in new things for their own sake. The yeah. thing that makes something move from just being creative to being innovative is when you take those new things and you work on them to create actual value. Yeah, I think that's, I love that, you know, create something of value out of that innovation. I mean, that's a message that comes across through all of your books and all of your writing and the presentations that I've watched. So yeah, very important point. Okay, um, what's the best thing you've done to develop new ideas? Uh, so the best thing I've done to develop new ideas is read. Uh, I'm, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm just an avid reader. Like I love, I, I'm a former academic. So yeah. reading, 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 expanding my mind, reading in, in areas and fields that have nothing to do with the work that I do, trying to see if we can take some of those concepts and, I, and I apply them to, to, to my work. Of course, the busier I get, the less time I get to read, but I find that the more I read, the better I get at my craft. Hmm. So you read a lot of things outside of your own area and you, you, connecting the dots is really important then. Yeah, connecting the dots becomes really important. and. Uh, and because that's what I remember um, uh, when, when I did research on creativity and what drives creativity. And there was really great work by William Maddox about how cross-cultural experiences increase your level of creativity. 
And it was just because you, you do this cognitive expansion where you're able to bring more things to bear on your thinking and that allows you to sort of see patterns and, 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 and recognize connections where others can't see them. Hmm. Yeah, I love it. Um, what's a favorite resource that you use most often? My iPad. I'm like, yeah. where is my iPad? Like, it's always with me. <laughs> I use it to do presentations and keynotes. I use it to take notes. I use it to, it's the, it's the one resource that I use a lot is my iPad with the, with, with the pen. Now that it comes with the pen, it's just, yeah. yeah. Okay. And yet you have all the books on, available on there all as the well? All the books are on my iPad as well. Articles I'm reading. No, it's just everything is there. Yeah. You, yeah. you, you stole my iPad. You've stolen my life. <laughs> <laughs> do you prefer reading or do you listen to audio books? Uh, I prefer reading. I'm not, mm. I listen to podcasts, but not, not audio books. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. I prefer reading right. because when I read, I'm a doodler. So that's how I make the, okay. Yeah. yeah. So I like doodling and, you know, taking notes and stuff. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a good point. I find, um, I listen to a lot of audio books. I find that's, that's something I do while I'm doing some physical work or mm. physical exercise. And I think that's really good use of my time in that sense. But then often I find, I, I think, oh, I have to remember that bit or, or that, that particular thing was articulated really well. I have to go and find that in the, in the physical book then and, and make a note of that because of the way it was expressed. I really like the way it was expressed or I want to remember the, the things that they've said. So I, I always find myself having to go back and then find the physical book or the, the, the digital um, printed book and, and highlight those things. Yes, yes. Hmm. All right, now what's the best way to keep a project or a client on track? Um, so, you, so this one is one, of, it's actually, I, I love that question. The one thing that we've um, kind of forgotten or we tend to have seen ignored in businesses a lot is to, is to put cadences and rituals that keep us on track. So the cool thing about Agile, the practices of Agile is that they built in these rituals of like daily stand-up, demo, retro, right? Weekly sprint, whatever it is, right? Those things are really how you stay on track. Because if you, if you neglect those rituals and start treating them like as if they're a pain, what you find is that you start to get misalignment in the in, in, in the work that teams are doing. And so the more we can stick with those rituals and really use them for what they're supposed to be for, you know, the better value we get. So that's the best way that I've found to keep clients and projects on track. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I, I'm a big fan of James Clear's Atomic Habits books and, and that kind of speaks to that, you know, small things can have a huge impact and their habits that you just keep doing those small things. Yeah. Hmm. Absolutely. All right. And what's the number one thing anyone can do to differentiate themselves? So that's interesting because I, I, my answer to that, I don't know whether my answer to that would lead to differentiation. So <laughs> I think that whatever it is that you're interested in, you have to become really, really good at it. So one of my favorite books is Cal Newport, So Good They Can't Ignore You. Mm. And it's just in that book just talks about like mastery, right? You need to get, you need to master your craft, whatever it is you choose to do, just be so good that they can't ignore you and always lead with mastery and always lead with craft. Even if it's knowledge work, like become really great at something. And that choice to become great at something 
is I find the best way to to to, 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 to sort of stand out and differentiate yourself, right? Because a lot of people are, are much more like the world is the world is a tendency towards mediocrity. Like people are like happy to coast. And so the the more you can kind of distinguish yourself from that, you know, the better you can become. Hmm. And and part of that is kind of being really clear about what it is that you want to master and and perhaps even specialize. Because I think one of the issues that um you, you know you mentioned that world's becoming really good at mediocrity is that people try to do too much and two different things and unrelated things and i think that um i mean it's great to do a whole lot of things but you can't necessarily be the expert who who is helping other people or who makes a business out of all those different things right yeah i mean there's this whole concept of t-shaped individuals i like that concept a lot because what it does is it it gives a chance for both things to happen. So you choose something that you're going to go deep at, which is the, hmm. you know, the, the straight line of your T. And then you go for the horizontal line, which is the other stuff you dabble in that just helps you get better at the thing that you're going deep. But you need mastery in something. There's, yeah. there's, there's value in, 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 in being a master at something, even though you're like you're dabbling in other things. So. Hmm. Yeah, great. Interesting model, the T-shaped model. <laughs> I have to remember that one. <laughs> okay, well, thanks, Tinday. This has been really fabulous. Now, where can people find out more about you, learn, uh, find out about your books, and maybe even reach out and say thanks for what you've shared today? Yeah, my website, right? Maybe you can share it in your links, uh, in your notes, whatever, www.tendaiviki.com. That's where, like, all things that I do are are to be found yeah okay and we, we certainly will share that in the in the show notes so people can click straight through cool all right well um do you have any parting advice for our listener today no not really no more parting advice <laughs> i no think they've heard, i think they've heard enough from me <laughs> it's so good they can't ignore you that's my parting advice <laughs> okay that's well that's really good advice yeah be so good you can't be ignored yeah. all right and finally who else should i get on this show and why um i think you you might want to, have you ever had cal newport on your show no i haven't yeah well there it is get cal no. the author of so okay and ignoring you yeah yeah and so do you have a connection to him do you know him no i'm just a fan oh, that's all right well 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 i've i've started um accepting that people recommend others that they don't know personally but admire or admire their work so I've, i'm working out some ways that we can then reach out to those people and let them know that hey there's two people that have had this conversation that's about to be published and we're fans we're big fans yeah. and we'd love to have a conversation with you yeah because i'd love to you know the you know the whole conversation around mastery and getting good is mm. you know it's a, that's a really interesting conversation to have especially for innovators all right. Well, we'll reach out to Cal and see if we can bring him on the show. So thanks for that recommendation. Thank you. And thanks. Thanks for your time and, and sharing your insights so generously today. I've loved talking about innovation and exploring the whole idea of balancing that innovative portfolio together with some maintaining your core business as well mm -hmm. and all the challenges that that brings with it. So thanks for all of that. And please stay in touch and all the best for the future. Yeah, thank you very much. This was a great pleasure for me to be here. Thanks.
I hope you enjoyed that insightful and really informative conversation with Tendai and took something away from his episode. Curiosity combined with creating value and relationships as a formula for innovation. That was my takeaway from today's episode. I'd love to know what you took away from Tendai's episode. Leave a comment below the blog post, which you can find at innovabiz.co forward slash tendaiviki. That is T-E-N-D-A-Y-I-V-I-K-I. All lowercase, all one word, innovabiz.co forward slash tendaiviki. You'll also find contact information there for getting in touch with Tendai, as well as links to his website, his books, his social media pages, and the other resources we spoke about in today's conversation. If you liked this episode, then please share it with two other people that it might help. And tag me in on that share so that I can reach out to you with a special surprise as a thank you. Tendai suggested that we have a conversation with Cal Newport, author of So Good They Can't Ignore You, and he's also author of Deep Work, on a future InnovaBuzz podcast episode. So, Cal, keep an eye on your inbox for an invitation from us to the InnovaBuzz podcast, courtesy of Tendai Vicky. Tune in again to the next episodes of the InnovaBuzz podcast where we've got yet more fantastic guests lined up, including Brooke Salas of B Squared Media and Danny May of Lingmo. Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the show to be reminded of new episodes. It's free to subscribe. Leave a review if you like. Even if you don't like me, I'm okay with that. I'm asking you to leave a review because it helps other people find this show. Go to innovabiz.co to join our marketing transformation community and access a free gift my team and I made for you. It's the Marketing Master Mini Class. We want to give you everything you need to transform your marketing into a human-centered, relationship-focused growth engine. Until next time, I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz. Remember, be awesome and keep innovating.